Amen. Well, good morning again. As I said before, we are going to be in the book of Exodus this morning. Um, now, this is, a, uh, this is a big book, right? The Bible. It's a huge book written over uh, thousands of years um, by many, many different authors. Uh, and one of the things that we have to do um, as a people is, is figure out how it all sort of fits together. Um, not so much look at each individual book, even though each individual book is unique in its own uh, right. So some things right off the bat. Um, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Um, it was written by a man named Moses. Moses is actually credited with writing the first five books uh, of the Bible. Um, and Moses, right from the beginning, was a, uh, a man of faith. He was, uh, he was just perfect in every way. Um, everybody loved him. He was the life... No, he wasn't. He was a nobody. All right? He was a, a nobody who almost died right off the bat. Um, and um, God uses this, this weak man... To, to write the first five books of the Bible and do something um, amazing in this book. Uh, God is going to work through Moses in a way that, um, that brings glory to God um, and elevates uh, his people, God's people, to a status um, that they may never uh, achieve again in all of, of human history to, to this point. And that is that everyone fears the Israelites because of their great God. Um, and I think there is a tendency in this book to, to focus on the big stories of this book, okay? In Exodus, there are a lot of big stories. Uh, there is the story of, of Moses, um, the story of his birth, the story of, of the burning bush is, is in here uh, as well. We have uh, the building of, of cities in Egypt and uh, the mystique and the, the wonder that is this, uh, this great civilization of, of Egypt here. We have the 10 plagues that God is going to pour out on Egypt. Uh, we have the parting of the Red Sea and the exodus of the people of God from, um, from captivity. We also have things like the Ten Commandments in there. We have manna from heaven. We have all of these amazing, amazing stories. And it ends, or kind of climaxes, uh, right around chapter 19. And there are still 21 more verses, or 21 more chapters in this book. Uh, when God meets with his people on a mountain called Sinai and gives them the law. Um, gives them the Ten Commandments, and um, also gives them at the end instruction on how to build a tabernacle uh, for God to dwell with his people. Um, so again, this is an exciting book. Uh, there's a lot of waterworks. There's a lot of fireworks. Um, there is a lot of action that happens in this book. It is a historical narrative. It is a story. And in that story, characters are important. And the main character of this book is not the author, Moses. It's the author, God Almighty. He is the great hero, not only of this story, but of all of the Bible. And what we're going to do today is we are going to look at the person of God in the first six chapters of this 
book of Exodus. Okay, I'll give you an overview of, of where we're going to go here. Um, in uh, This week, we're going to talk about the person of God in chapters 1 through 6. Um, next week, we're going to look at the power of God. We're going to see the, uh, the plagues that God pours out. On, on Egypt. We're going to talk about the significance of those plagues. We're going to see the people walk through a sea on dry land and God utterly destroy an army. We are going to look at the power of our God. And then finally, we're going to look at the precepts of our God in week three, which is the law that he hands down to Moses and the people. Um, and we are going to see how that is a, a gracious act by our God. Um, we're also going to uh, look at some of the other characters here in depth, but our main focus will be the person of God the Father and how he moves. So let's pray. Father God, Lord, we just, um, we praise you, God, Lord, for, uh, for putting together and uh, sustaining, holding all things together um, God, and specifically, we thank you, Lord, for preserving the canon of Scripture. God, that we can look back um, at these stories, Lord, and see how you moved throughout history. Lord, how you did not change even though the circumstances or the people of God um, were in difficult circumstances. You remained faithful to your people all throughout history. God, as we, as we look into this book, God, I pray that you would be honored and glorified. God, that we would see your person, that we would see your power, Lord, and that we would learn your precepts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's look back for a second, okay? We started in Genesis this morning. I don't have any slides, but we started in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with scripture, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. We're in the second book of the Bible, so we don't have to go real far back. Um, in Genesis, we have great stories as well. We have the story of creation. We have the fall of man as he um, chooses to disobey God and sin comes into the world. And as a result, death comes into this world. Um, we have the story of, of Noah and the flood, how uh, humanity began to spread and, and spread out and wickedness was all over the land and God looked down and only saw one man, Noah, and decided to destroy the world by a great flood. Uh, we have the repopulation of the world after that. And then we have the call of a man named Abram who again, much like Moses, was a nobody. He was out in the field one day and heard the voice of God and obeyed the voice of God. God said, take everything you have, leave and go to a land that I, or to get, you know, leave everything, go to a land that I am going to show you. And by faith, Abraham or Abram obeys. God makes a covenant with Abram in chapter 12. He says, listen, I'm gonna give you three things. I'm gonna give you a land, I'm going to give you a seed or a heritage or a people that will come from you. We saw that in, um, in chapter 15 here that Abram was initially a little confused by that. He thought that he would just find some guy named Eleazar and say, hey, this is my heir. God said, no, I'm going to give you a child. Um, and from that child, there will be a great nation. And through that nation, all nations will be blessed. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And the rest of the book of Genesis is the story of God working through this family. 
Um, we see this family have tremendous victories. We see them have tremendous setbacks. Um, we see the, the hand of God divinely working in some difficult situations. And probably one of the most difficult situations is the end of the book of Genesis, which is where the book of Exodus picks up. At the end of the book of Genesis, we have the family um, of, of Abram. Uh, Abram has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has many sons. One of those sons' names is Joseph. And Joseph finds himself sold into slavery by his brothers. This is a great family. Sold into slavery by his brothers uh, and winds up in Egypt as a slave. Now we have a great redemption story here as this slave is elevated to the second in command of all the land of Egypt because he rescues not only the land of Egypt from a great famine through the work of God, um, but he also rescues his family in the process. Um, Joseph then brings his family down to Egypt. They're able to escape the famine, and the people of God begin to grow in the land of Egypt. And this is where we pick up the book of Exodus four. Hundred years after Joseph dies. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Why was the land filled with them? Somebody take a guess. There's only one reason the land was filled with them, and it has to do with the book of Genesis, something we just mentioned. God promised it. That's the only reason that they filled the land. These are things that we are going to echo all throughout the book of Exodus. Because God promised it, it happened. No man could stand against it. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. If war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh uh, store cities, Python and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. God does work in, in mysterious ways. Uh, one of the things that I hope that we observe throughout this study here is that our God doesn't change. Um, the, way that he, uh, the way that he is, his character, his, his personhood, it does not change change. In these first verses of Exodus here, we don't read anything about how um, spiritually great Israel was at this point. The only thing we read about them is that there is a lot of them. And when Pharaoh tries to squish them, they spread out. They spread out. Does this remind you of any other portion of scripture here? where maybe the people of God were in a rough situation and they had to 
spread out. The book of Acts, right? The early church. Exodus. You can look at the book of Exodus and think of it as Acts in the Old Testament, except this is the Acts of God, okay? It's not the Acts of the Apostles. Um, I would make a case that Acts is still the Acts of God in the New Testament, Um, but Exodus is the, the Acts of God here. And the things that seem logical to human beings, oh, there's, there's too many Israelites here. If a war breaks out, they're going to take us over. That seems logical. Hey, we should do something about how many there are. Let's make their work really, really tough. The world says that. And God says, okay, put the pressure on, and I'm going to multiply the people. You want them to die, and I'm going to multiply. That's what he says. He says, you cannot stop what I have said. These people will be numerous no matter what you try to do to them. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Remember what I said at the beginning. Israel is going to get to the point here where everyone fears them. This is the beginning of that fear. There are many and many and many of them. Our big idea today is that our righteous God will deliver and redeem his people because of his nature. Not because they got to a certain number, not because they were good enough. It is because it is in his nature. And what do I mean by that? Well, we look at our first point here, and we're going to see the first clash here in the first couple of chapters. But the first clash here is the righteous God versus the ruthless pharaohs. The righteous God versus the ruthless pharaohs. We continue reading here in verse 13. It says, They ruthlessly made the people, uh, I'm sorry, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, here's what you need to understand about this character of Pharaoh here Pharaoh may be, up to this point, the most wicked individual, human being, that we have met in all of scripture. Pharaoh is all about Pharaoh. Pharaoh's people even view Pharaoh as a god. His word is absolute truth. What he decrees, what he wants, whatever he does, he can do no wrong. He has absolute and total power. And he has no respect for the people of God. He does not remember Joseph. He does not remember the great works that God did through Joseph in sparing Egypt and preserving Egypt to this point. He is a wicked, wicked man. Proverbs chapter chapter 10 verse 3 says, The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the cravings of the wicked. What we're going to see in the book of Exodus is that God is going to thwart the wicked. He is going to thwart their plans. What does it mean to thwart? It means to mess up. It means to be in opposition to. 
It means to stop, to utterly put an end to. See, the problem is that Pharaoh right now is in direct opposition to the will of God. The will of God is that the people grow. This is not a position that you want to be. Unfortunately, for Pharaoh, his son and his grandson are righteous God's promise to Israel and Abraham will reign true. Whoever curses you, I will curse. But Pharaoh has another plan to curb the, uh, the numerical problem, the numerical growth of the people of God. Uh, Pharaoh, in his infinite wisdom, uh, towards the end of the chapter here, he calls the midwives in. He says, Hebrew midwives, this is what I want you to do. Every time a, a Hebrew baby is born, I want you to kill it. A male Hebrew baby. Let the female babies live, but every time a male Hebrew baby is born, you kill it. And the midwives say, no. Like, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. Why do the midwives say no? Do they have the law right now? No, they don't have the law right now. But what they do have are stories in the book of Genesis that tell us that murder is wrong and God hates it. I mean, we have to look at the story of Cain and Abel, right? Didn't turn out pretty well for Cain in the long run, did it? No, it didn't turn out well for Cain. We have stories of, of, like we read this morning, of God's promise to Abraham that he would make them a great nation. The midwives realize here, listen, we will be in opposition to the will of God here if we kill the male babies. And they say, we're not going to do it. Pharaoh comes to them, says, why haven't you done it? They say, listen, Hebrew women are different than Egyptian women. They... They give birth quick. You Egyptian women tend to labor. These Hebrew mothers, they start getting pains and boom, there's a baby. Right before we even get there. Can't do anything about it. Sorry, baby's already born. God honors them for not doing this wicked and vile thing. So Pharaoh says, I'm going to go around you. I'm going to make a decree to the entire nation Every male baby that is born to the Hebrews, you chuck it in the Nile. Throw the baby in the Nile. Chapter 2 starts off with this uh, Midianite woman, or I'm not Midianite, this Levite woman, jumping ahead here, uh, Levite woman um, who finds a uh, a Levite man. Uh, They get married, they have a son. She's uh, about to give birth. Um, she, she has a son and she hides him for three months. Uh, when she can't hide him anymore, she makes him a little boat, for lack of a better term, and then places him uh, in the weeds um, in the Nile River there. As she places him in the weeds of the Nile River, this child's older sister is kind of hanging out. She's like, ooh, what's mom doing? She's putting the baby in the Nile. Why is mom putting the baby in the Nile? I don't know. She's watching. As she's watching, Pharaoh's daughter comes up, finds the baby there, and it says that Pharaoh's daughter took pity on the baby. She saw that it was a Hebrew child and took pity on this child. Moses' little sister runs up quick. She's like, hey, uh, you want me to find a Hebrew woman to nurse that baby for you? She says, go. 
goes back to her mom, says, hey, listen, Pharaoh's daughter found your baby. And you get to nurse and raise this baby for a little longer. What a great story, right? What a terrible story. But what a great turn of events for her. Side note, not only does she get to nurse and raise the baby, uh, Pharaoh's daughter says that she's going to pay her for it. <laughs> How'd you like that job? Hey, uh, I'm going to pay you to raise your child. Um, so, uh, so goes in, pays her. Pharaoh's daughter says go. She goes. Um, after the child is weaned, she brings, her, uh, bring, brings this child back to Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter names this child Moses, which means to draw up or to pull out of. Um, because she drew him up and pulled him out of the water. What happens when the righteous God clashes with this ruthless Pharaoh? Well, an anti-Semitic Pharaoh winds up with a Jew for a grandson. How do you like that one? Moses is going to be a stench to Pharaoh, and he's in his own house because of the word of God, because of the will of God. Not because Pharaoh's daughter wanted to stick it to her, her dad. Not because it was just convenient circumstance. This is the will of God. And this is God showing regard for his people. It's our second point here. God's regard for his people is going to be greater than Moses' recklessness. God's regard for his people will be greater than Moses' recklessness. Um, We see this this young child Moses growing up in the the palace, in the house of Pharaoh. Um, He realizes at some point he's a Hebrew. He realizes he's not Egyptian. And he's living in an Egyptian's house. So what he does, he decides to go out among his people. He looks around. He sees this Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. He gets angry. And he commits premeditated murder. How do we know it's premeditated murder? The Bible tells us very clear. He looks to the left. He looks to the right. He looks both ways. Nobody's there. And he kills this Egyptian and hides his body. Moses becomes a vigilante. He is going to enact some Hebrew justice here. He's like, nope, not on my watch. Walks out again the next day. He sees two Hebrews. He walks up to them and they're fighting with one another. He says, hey, whoa, why, what's, the, what's the kerfuffle here? Why are you guys fighting with each other? And they look at him. And they say to him, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses gets scared. See, he thought what he had done was done in secret. But now it is known to the Hebrews. Something else little happens here though. We already know that Pharaoh was not ecstatic about having this little Jewish boy who he said to kill grow up in his house. But now the Hebrews, his people, are rejecting him. 
Moses is a man without a land. He's a man without a people. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. He's got nowhere to go. So what does he do? He flees to the wilderness. He runs away. It says Pharaoh finds out what happened. He seeks to kill him, but he doesn't find, he doesn't find Moses. Moses finds himself sitting by a well. That's where he finds himself. And all of his Egyptian guard, he's sitting by a well out in the land of Midian. Um, these, uh, these daughters come up, seven daughters come up um, from this, this shepherd family. Um, daughters of a priest named Jethro. And Moses is just kind of sitting there. Other shepherds start to come and they start to mess with these girls. Moses stands up. Hebrew justice, he comes around. He says, no, I will defend these women. Defends the women, waters their flock. The women go home. Dad says, hey, how'd you get home so fast? They say, oh, an Egyptian saved us. And the Hebrews look at Moses and they see an Egyptian. I think sometimes we get this picture of Moses that he was this dynamic, charismatic character and I think he felt out of place everywhere he was. The great news, though, of Scripture is that God often uses the weakest to do the greatest things. He was not the most likely candidate. God's regard for his people is greater than Moses' recklessness. Midian welcomes him into his home gives him one of his daughters to be married. She has a son, and we come to chapter three here, where Moses is now a shepherd, and he's out with his flock. Turn with me to Exodus chapter three. Actually, no, for one second, turn back to Exodus chapter two, verse 23 here, because here we do see God's regard for his people. During the many days the king of Egypt died, And the people of Israel groaned, verse 23, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now there's a couple of things that I'd like to unpack before we go back to Moses here. 400 years. They were not... Uh, in brutal slavery for 400 years, but they definitely were not regarded as a blessing for 400 years. They were a people in the Egyptians' mind that weren't supposed to be there. They were supposed to go back to their home. But during these 400 years, these Israelites got comfortable. There were tremendous benefits of living right in Egypt or just outside of Egypt. Like I said before, it was one of the greatest civilizations of the time. There were things there that they did not have to work for that if they were out in the wilderness or if they had gone back to the land that they came from, they would not have received these comforts. And they get comfortable. And they start to forget. I would make a case that not only do the pharaohs forget who Joseph is. Some of the Israelites forget who Joseph is. 
How do I know that they're comfortable? Well, I read further in the story. What do they want to do when things start getting hard in the wilderness? They want to go back to Egypt. Why did we leave? Why did you bring us out? See, the people are starting to let comfort become their God. We'll see this, we'll see this flesh out a little later here. But our God loves these people, even though they are so unlovely. For some reason, our righteous God chooses to love these people. And this brings us back to this idea that our God doesn't change. Where else in scripture do we see God loving an unlovely people? Where else in life do we see God loving an unlovely people? We can go back to Colossians. If we want to, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled to his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. The book of Romans says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were worth nothing, he gave what was worth the most. See, we serve a gracious God who does not look at our deeds. God didn't say to the people of Israel here, listen, clean yourself up, look pretty, show me something here, and I will hear your voice. No. God said, even though you're not worth it, I hear you. Not because you're worth it, but because of my own righteous word that for 400 years you would be afflicted as we read in Genesis chapter 15 and then four generations you would wander in a desert and then finally enter into the land that I have prepared for you. Had nothing to do with the righteousness of Israel. It had everything to do with the righteousness of God. So let's see how God deals with this murderer in, uh, in Moses here. Uh, Moses is walking along in chapter 3, verse 1. Um, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. But out of the midst of the bush he looked, and behold, the bush was not burning yet, and it was not consumed. And Moses said... I will turn aside to see this great sight, uh, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here am I. Then he said, do not come near, take off your, the sandals of your feet, the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid of God. Moses didn't go looking for God. God found a murderer who was a shepherd in the wilderness. And God calls out to Moses. Again, our gracious, our righteous, gracious God calls out because it is in his nature. He has regard for his people, even though they are reckless. And Moses was a reckless man. 
Verse seven, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters and I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to a land, good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Look at the way God refers to Israel. How does he refer to them? My people. Our last point here is that God desires a relationship, and I missed one here. God desires a relationship with his reluctant people. He calls them my people. He says, listen, I have heard your cry. I have seen your affliction. And I know your burden. Our God wants a relationship with these people. Unfortunately, these people are willing to settle for comfort. And we're going to see that as this continues here. God reaches out and engages Moses (laughs) He gives him great news. He says, listen, they're in pain. I am going to deliver them out of this pain. They are in bondage. I'm going to free them from this bondage because I am their God. Not because they're worth it. Because I am their God. And I said, this is what we're going to do. He says, Moses, go down to Egypt and get my people out of there. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? This is going to be the first of many objections, I would say, that that Moses makes. Uh, For most of us here, Okay, for most of us here, um, I've often read this, this verse, and maybe not most of us, maybe I'm just weird, I actually think Moses is probably the perfect candidate, um, but that's, that's just me. Uh, even from a worldly perspective, like he's got connections in the government, um, he, he knows the Pharaoh, uh, he knows his people are there, like there's a lot of really nice benefits to, to Moses being the guy. You know, he kind of gets to play both sides of the fence. Maybe it's the car salesman in me. I don't know, but I think he's got some good, you know, sticking points here. But Moses is reluctant. Who am I that I should go? Um, I want to take just a brief moment here and um, talk about the people of Israel at this point in the story. Um, And it's easy for us to judge the people of of Israel. Um, It's easy for us to say or look at Moses and say, dude, the bush is talking to you. Okay? Like, God's presence is here in front of you. Shut up. Like, don't, don't say anything. Like, just keep your mouth quiet and, and listen. 
I mean, God does it to, to Peter, right? <laughs> Peter says, hey, it's good for us to be here. Let's build some tabernacles. Let's do this. Let's do that. And God says, hey, zip it. But Moses is bold. Um, how many of us out here have, have children? Raise your hand if you have children. Okay. How many of you have tried to teach your child how to swim? Raise your hand. So I, I vividly remember the few times that I was with Ryan. Um, and, you know, you, you gear up the child, okay, to go swimming nowadays, all right? It's like swimmies, you got the life jacket on, you got everything. You know, the kid can barely move. It's like a scene out of, um, out of a Christmas story where the kid comes out and he's like, I can't put my arms down. Um, you know, and we're like, we're like hey, you know, we, we don't want anything to happen to them. And we're in the water. And I'm yelling to Ryan. I'm like, not yelling. Well, maybe I am yelling. Um, I'm yelling to Ryan. I'm like, just jump in. Just jump in. Now, as the parent, I know I can, I, I could probably still handle Ryan today. I know I'm not the strongest guy in the world, but when she was three or four years old, I could definitely handle her. If she jumped in, not even her head was going to go under the water. I knew that as the parent. But as a child, Ryan would struggle. No, I'm scared. I'm afraid. I don't know. I don't want my head to go underwater. I don't want to get water in my nose. I don't want to get water in my ears. The people of Israel right now, and Moses in particular, are like that child. See, God is calling to them. He is capable. He is powerful. He's strong enough to do it. And they're scared. They're afraid. Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Verse 12, but he said, I will be there with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent to you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say the God of your father sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What does that mean? I am has sent me to you. Well, it means exactly what we're learning in the book of Colossians. That we serve the preeminent God. The God who was, the God who is, the God who is to come. The God who was before the beginning of time. The eternal God. And this eternal God next week we're going to see goes up against a God or gods who have a beginning. And by the end of the story they will most surely have an end. But our God does not. Our God desires to dwell with his people, to be with his people. Say, I am has sent me. Say to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has, um, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to re be remembered throughout all generations 
Go and gather the, Israel, uh, the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of, the, of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt and I promise that I will bring you up out of your affliction in Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevitites, and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to our God. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand. I will strike Israel with, uh, I'm sorry, I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give his people, I will give this people favor in the sight of all the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in that house for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing, you shall put them on your sons and your daughters so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Hey, we're done. End of the story. God said it. It's going to happen. What do you think Moses does? Yeah, Lord, sounds like a great plan. This is, this is easy. I'm going to go down. You're going to do all the work. I'm going to say a few words. And uh, then we're going to get a bunch of riches and be able to get out of the land. Tuesday. You know, that's what I call that. I call that Tuesday. I'm done. God says something in here, though. It's going to be rough, but it'll be worth it. He says that Pharaoh will not let them go unless compelled by his strong hand, and he will stretch out his strong hand. He is going to harden the heart of Pharaoh, and it is going to be difficult. We will talk next week about the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh and the power of our God and the signs and the wonders that he is going to display But the one thing is true from this passage is that our God is excited to be with his people. Through the rest of chapter four, uh, Moses continues to doubt. These are the the complaints he gives, the excuses he gives. Uh, They won't believe me or listen to me, he says to God. So God gives him signs to do. He's got a staff in his hand. Moses throws it down the ground, turns into a snake, picks it up again, staff again. Pretty cool. He says, uh, uh, God, um, uh, that's, that's, that's great. Um, God says, hey, take your hand, um, put it in your cloak, pull it out. It's all leprous, which means that his fingers are falling off and it's gross and it's scary. It looks like a zombie hand. Um, and then all of a sudden, magically, he puts his hand back in, pulls it out again, and it's completely healed. One of the most communicable, deadly diseases of the ancient world healed just by putting it back in his cloak and pulling it out because of the power of God. Last sign, he says, hey, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, it's going to turn into blood. He's going to believe these signs. Next complaint, I can't speak good, God. Can't speak good. God says, hey, who made your mouth? I made your mouth. I know how it works. I'll make it do the good words, okay? Third one, and this is the final straw. See, our God is patient with 
uh, with Abraham for, for two chapters here, or I'm sorry, with, uh, with Moses for two chapters here. Um, and then he comes to the third one where he just flat out says, send somebody else. Send anybody. Not me. The anger of the Lord is kindled against Moses and he says, well, there's your brother Aaron. He's a priest. He's got the good words. He can speak well. I will send him with you and he will be your mouthpiece. I will tell you what to say. You will tell him what to say and we'll play whisper down the lane if that's what you want to do. Sounds like a good plan, except for the fact that Aaron later is going to wind up being more of a burden than a blessing because Moses did not trust. He was reluctant. Moses decides that he will go. He goes back to uh, his father-in-law, says, hey, I'm packing up the family. We're heading down to Egypt. And on the way, God has a special message for Moses. And he says, uh, in verse 21 of chapter four, he says, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have uh, put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, and look at this relationship, guys, that God wants with his people. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Guys, isn't it great to know that we have a God who, um, who will fight for us? Who views us as, as sons and daughters if we know him? I mean, God here chose the people of Israel. He says, they are my firstborn son. If we know Jesus Christ as our personal savior, we are sons and daughters of God. And our God will fight for us. Our God wants us to serve him. But the people here are still a little reluctant. After this, Aaron goes out and he meets with Moses. Uh, they go to the people. They speak to the people. It says the people believe. And then Moses has the task of going into Pharaoh's court. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, After Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh to say, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. This Pharaoh has no respect for the God of Israel. And honestly, why should he? His people, God's people, are in bondage. They're not following his precepts, his ways. For a majority of the time, they were comfortable. When it started to get rough, that's when they cried out. Why should he fear God? Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? 
Get back to your burdens. And the Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. Pharaoh devises a plan right here. He is going to systematically pit Moses and Aaron against the people of Israel. And what he's going to do is he's going to say, listen, these two knuckleheads came in and they said, we want a three-day weekend. We want to go out. We want, to, uh, we want to worship God on the mountain. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, hey, listen, quota for bricks, still the same. But guess what? You guys, we're not going to provide you straw. All of you Israelites need to go out, gather your own straw, come back, make bricks, and you need to make the same amount. The foreman of the Israelites comes to, uh, comes to the, the, the head of the Egyptian uh, taskmasters and he's like, this, this is impossible. Like, what happened? Like, we, we just, you know, we, we can't do all of this work. It's too great for us. Taskmaster's like, hey, go talk to Moses and Aaron. And they go back. And the head of the the foreman says to Moses and Aaron, God judge you for what has been done to us. They blame him. And Moses says, no, God told me this was going to happen and I will have faith, right? No. Moses runs back like a little baby. He cries to God. He's like, oh God, I did it, I did it. it, And now they're mad at me. Why have you done this horrible thing? They're not delivered at all. That's what he says. He says, hey, your people, you said you would deliver them. They're not delivered at all. (sighs) The beginning of chapter six here. And we're gonna end with this. But the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, I will send, out, send, uh, send them out. With a strong hand, I, I will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, the God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of my people, the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring unto you the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the Israelites. See guys, our God desires a relationship. He's always desired a relationship with people. People are the ones who slapped God in the face and broke that relationship. But God, our unchanging God, never 
ceases to reach out to his people and supernaturally acts sometimes to call them back to a right relationship with him. And he's doing it here in Exodus. And the people say, come Lord, come, right? No! Moses spoke thus, verse 9, to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. It wasn't easy. It wasn't comfortable. It hurt. It felt bad. The bad man yelled at me. I'm, I'm upset. My feelings are hurt. My back is hurt. I don't care how powerful you are, God. My situation is terrible right now. It's not the people now crying out for this powerful God. It's God reaching down his hand to move this people. And they just kind of shrug it off and walk away. Next week, we're going to see the power of God. We're going to see what he is holding back right now. And this power that is going to be unleashed is going to reveal something about the character of God that we'll discuss next week. But here's where I want to leave it with us. That our God does desire a relationship with us. When we read this story in the Old Testament, it's a 100% true story. But as Christians today, we are supposed to be reminded of the cross. We are supposed to be reminded of the story of how God reached down and came down to earth and redeemed his people. He delivered us not from a bondage of human beings, but a bondage of sin and slavery. This lends to the credence that our God doesn't change. The plan was the same from the beginning. And this story that is wonderfully knit together is supposed to constantly remind us that our God wants a relationship with us sometimes as reluctant people. See, in this story, our God doesn't have to change. I think part of the reason John mentioned this earlier as we were talking um, before the service here, I think part of the reason why we don't have the tendency to look at God in this story is because he doesn't change. We know how he's going to react. We expect him to react like that because God is constant. People are fickle. We are reckless. We are reluctant. And we're rebellious. Who are you going to follow? That's the real question here. For the people of Israel. Are you going to stay in the comfort of slavery? Or are you going to follow what God is doing? So as we continue on in this. My encouragement to you is as you read this. Start to look at God. And his righteousness in the story. Start to look at God. And his regard for his people in the story. And start to look for how God. Wants a relationship with these people. Even though they don't want it.
Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I just thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, it was a lot this morning. Um, God, and I just, I thank you, God, that we, um, we do have so much more. Um, and God, this is only six chapters out of a very large book. God, but you desire to redeem and deliver your people. And God, we thank you that you give us such a great example of this in the book of Exodus. That you haven't changed. That times were hard, but you were faithful. God, we were faithless. Lord, but you remained faithful. God, as we continue on here as, as Christians, as those who, who seek to follow you, Lord, when it gets hard, I pray that we would look to you and follow even harder. God, when it gets rough, Lord, that we would cry out to you and trust that you will deliver us. Lord, when the difficult circumstances of life come along, God, that we would not let those things blind us to the truth of scripture. God, that you love us, want a relationship with us. And Lord, it is nothing that we did on our own. God, but it is all by your power and your might. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.